1 Kings chapter 21, we pick up there verse 17, and then we return to our regularly scheduled programming in 2 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 21, 17 through 29, the end of the chapter, 1 Kings chapter 1, 21, and then again over to 2 Kings chapter 9. Listen, this is God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs Lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, And like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and laid in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now you need to turn ahead about, oh, 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 pages in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. Again, listen. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. 
So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house, house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet him, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He has reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be, so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Yahweh made this pronouncement against him. 
As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares Yahweh, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fed, fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. You have heard the saying, I'm sure, justice delayed is justice denied. And of course, there's a great deal of truth in that. But I'm here to tell you this morning that sometimes justice delayed still results in justice. I was probably way more excited than a normal 10 or 11-year-old boy should be when I first discovered there is a single, beautiful, specific word in the English language the sole purpose of which is to describe what happens to Jezebel in this chapter. But then again, how can you not love the word defenestration? The act of tossing a person or a thing out the window. Jezebel's defenestration is the highlight, or the low light, if you will, of this chapter. And it is an act of God's judgment declared, delayed, but most certainly delivered. I want to walk you through this section to both provide, as you can very well sense from this chapter, a sense of warning, but also a sense of 
uh, an education for God's people later and certainly as a sense of comfort for you. It's an act of God's judgment declared, delayed, and delivered. It's declared in 1 Kings 21. By that time in 1 Kings 21, we have come to know Jezebel as a foreigner, that is a non-Israelite, Baal-worship-promoting, prophet-of-Yahweh-killing queen and the wife of Ahab. And Ahab, we are told, exceeded in his evil every king who had come before him, and he sets a kind of benchmark for wickedness and evil for all who followed him. And in this, Jezebel has incited him to sin. God had given to his people, you'll remember, uh, in the time of Samuel and to Saul and David, God had given to his people a king, a king who was supposed to point forward and to picture the great king, Jesus Christ, who would come over, rule, defend his, cho- his people, who would reward righteousness, who would destroy evil, who would punish the offender, who would execute justice. And with Jezebel at his side, Ahab does everything exactly opposite. As a gift to his wife, he builds altars and shrines dedicated to Baal. She promotes the worship of Baal. He at least tolerates it and even encourages it, it seems. And he is responsible with her inciting uh, to lead to the deaths of so many prophets of the Lord. You remember, he's the king responsible. It was a long time ago we saw this, but he's the king responsible for the famine announced by Elijah. It is he who agrees to the contest on Mount Carmel, where the Lord sends fire from heaven, demonstrating his vast superiority over the gods of the lands, but over especially over Baal in that moment. But you remember the fallout of that. Elijah has prophets of Baal killed. Jezebel retaliates, and she's responsible, along with Ahab, for the deaths of hundreds of prophets of the Lord, so that Elijah runs for his life. He ends up in the wilderness. He despairs of his own life, and he imagines he's the last man standing. Elijah's feeling rather sorry for himself out in the wilderness, and the Lord appears to him. And remember, as I said last week, the Lord gives him some instructions. Go back, do these three things. Anoint Elisha to be your successor. Go up to to, uh, Damascus and anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, a Syrian to be king of Syria. And to anoint Jehu to become king over Israel. Well, Elijah gets as far as anointing Elisha and having him be his, his successor. And then we have these, a series of chapters where there's a bit of overlap. We have the last days of Elijah before he ascends into heaven and these great mighty acts of Elisha, the next prophet of the Lord. The words of Elisha, the actions of Elisha standing as the servant, the voice of the Lord to the people of the Lord that they might do the will of the Lord. After he anoints Elisha, sometime later, Ahab, the most wicked king, is sitting in his palace, and he's looking out, and he sees a prime piece of real estate, and he wants it. 
And he tries to make an offer to his neighbor Naboth, and Naboth famously says, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth understands, as Ahab should have, that every Israelite has property in trust. It's the Lord's land. They're simply stewards of it. The Lord has given it to them as an inheritance to represent his kindness to them. So Ahab goes back to his bedroom. He's sulking, and Jezebel comes, and she mocks him. What kind of a king takes no for an answer? She orchestrates a fake trial with false witnesses who testify against Naboth. He's charged with treason against the king. He is found guilty. He's put to death outside of the city, and Ahab takes possession of his vineyard. And that little story, which we just preceded the first section we read, that story is a picture of what a foreign nation is going to do to Israel, which God has often called his vineyard. It's a picture of what God is going to do through a foreign power in, in taking away God's inheritance. And of course, it has parallels to the fake trial, to the trumped up charges, to the false witnesses that resulted in the accusations against Jesus that he was treasonous that lead to his death outside the city. But he rises from the dead and claims, redeems God's inheritance, a new covenant community. But to the point for our story today, the Lord sent Elijah to Ahab following the Naboth vineyard and Naboth death events to confront him in his sin and to pronounce on him judgment. And it's a judgment on Ahab for the most specific sins with respect to Naboth, but it's also a judgment that extends to his whole family and to his wife Jezebel for her role. But notice it's because the Lord wants to avenge himself, his own honor, his people. Ahab's line is going to be destroyed. He's going to die near where Naboth had died, and dogs will lick up his blood. And the dogs are going to eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And that's the judgment delivered by Elijah the Tishbite to Ahab the king on that day. It's judgment that is predicted. It's judgment that's announced. But then we realize, secondly, it's judgment delayed. So remarkably, Ahab humbles himself. And the Lord takes note of his humility. Notice the Lord does not promise to cancel or to reverse the judgment, but he extends to him a, a kind of small mercy. Ahab will not live to see this disaster unfold on his house. It's a mercy of sorts. Ahab is going to die before he sees this, but it is going to happen. And it'll happen in his son's lifetime. So sure enough, in the next chapter in 1 Kings, Ahab is killed in battle. You might remember this story. He is shot by an arrow in his chariot. His blood leaks all over the chariot. And when they bury him, they wash out his chariot and the dogs lick up his blood. And prostitutes wash themselves in it. 
And there's all kinds of graphic imagery and pictures of what's going on in the nation of Israel and especially what's going on as they are led in their distortions of worship by Jezebel who leads them in a kind of spiritual adultery. Well, after a brief reign by one of Ahab's sons who dies without a male heir, Ahab's next son, Joram, reigns in his place over Israel. Remember last week we had a bit of a, a challenge remembering about Joram and Jehoram, but Joram is in Israel, down in Judah. Jehoshaphat had been king during Ahab's reign. He dies. His son Jehoram reigns in his place. And again, if it's helpful, Jehoram has an H in it. So does Judah. Jehoram's in Judah. Joram in the north in Israel. But here's where things get additionally complicated. Jehoram in the south marries Ahab's daughter, Joram's sister. And that turns out to be a gigantic mistake because we know the justice and judgment of God is coming against the house of Ahab, which means Jehoram is putting himself in the direct line of God's wrath against Ahab. And this is why the Lord orchestrates all the events of chapters 8 and 9. You remember now, Elisha anoints Hazael to be king of Syria, the country to the north of Israel. And Jehoram of Judah dies a horrible death. He's succeeded by his son Ahaziah. And if we can keep all this straight, remember it's not going to be on the quiz. Ahaziah is now reigning in Judah. He's the grandson of Ahab. Joram, king of Israel, the son of Ahab, is reigning in the north. And the two of them line up. They're having Thanksgiving dinners together. They go on family picnics together, but they also go into battle together. They line up, and they're going to take on Hazael, king of Syria. And you know that's not going to end well, and it doesn't. Joram is injured in battle. He heads to the town of Jezreel, which had been Ahab's capital city before uh, Samaria. And Ahaziah goes to be at his side to comfort his relative as he recuperates from his battle wounds. And all that seems like a fine little piece of history, but what's happening? The Lord is orchestrating all these events so that these two kings are in the same place at the same time. And you can start to see the story coming together. Meanwhile, Elisha fulfills the third task the Lord had given to Elijah when he was in the wilderness. He is to anoint Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. In other words, a different Jehu than had been king in Judah, just to keep that straight. He, through his servant, anoints Jehu to be king of Israel, and Joram is on the throne already. But he commissions him to wipe out the family, the whole line of Ahab. And notice in verses 7 through 10, this is all according to the word of the Lord. In particular, Jehu is to be an agent of God's justice and of his wrath against Jezebel on account of her treatment of the prophets of the Lord and against the whole line of Ahab to wipe them off the map. The Lord will avenge himself of the blood of his servant. 
Jehu is immediately recognized by the commanders of the army as the next king. He is uh, immediately ushered along with them. He goes to take out his competition. Notice verse 14, he conspired against Joram. And he heads out with the commanders of the army to Jezreel, where again Joram is laid up wounded and Ahaziah is there with him. And then you have that great little series of ep- uh, this episodes where the watchman on the tower sees Jehu coming, and he knows him by his reputation as an aggressive driver. A succession of messengers are sent out to him, but they don't come back, and the king finally, the kings, two kings finally go out to meet up with him. And in the skirmish that follows, Joram is fatally wounded. Jehu strikes him with a well-placed arrow drawn with all his strength. And Joram dies. And since they just happened to be in the area of Naboth's vineyard, Jehu says to Bidkar, his aide, dump him out. And they rather ceremoniously eject Ahab, or sorry, eject um, Joram from the chariot onto the land where Naboth's vineyard had been. Ahaziah keeps fleeing. But he too, they finally catch up with him. He too is struck down. But at least notice he gets a decent burial in Jerusalem. And after all this is done, Jehu starts making his way to Jezreel. And apparently, the news has beat him home, or to to there. And this is where the story gets really dark. Jezebel hears, has heard the outcome of the trial, or the battle rather. She dolls herself up, presumably to charm Jehu. And he looks up and calls on her servants to send her for a fly. And they gladly do it. And she hits the pavement and splatters like an egg. Some of her blood is sprinkled on the wall and some of it is sprinkled on the horses. It's the same language used to describe blood sprinkled on the altar. Jehu has his horses trample on her And then what seems even more shocking is Jehu goes in for a meal. As if nothing happened. Goes in, sits down, and eats and drinks. Several commentators have pointed out the connection between this strange series of events and what gets recorded for us in John's Revelation chapter 19. Listen to this. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And just a few verses later in Revelation 19, we hear this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jehu goes in to eat and drink after that. 
And after he's eaten and drunk, Jehu seems to reconsider. And he says, go bury her, because after all, she is royalty. But they're too late because the dogs had already gotten to her. All that was left of her were her skull, her hands, and her feet. And surely you would have to think for a moment that if the dogs had eaten everything else, they could have taken her hands and feet and skull as well, could they? Why were they left? Well, Jehu has a moment of theological reflection. And he says, this is all according to the word of the Lord. As it had been spoken by Elijah the prophet. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as done on the face of the earth, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Not only is Jezebel not given a grave, and notice how that is so in contrast with the other king who does get a burial in Jerusalem. She is not given a grave. People could later visit either by way of honoring her or by simply remembering her. She's nearly utterly eaten by the dogs. There is no really delicate way to put this, friends. Jezebel goes in one end of the dog and comes out the other. So fully processed that when she comes out and is deposited on the ground, to use the words of another as divinely ordained fertilizer, she is as unrecognizable as any other meal the dogs have eaten. So that if you were taking a walk in the field, you couldn't point to one pile over another and say, well, there is Jezebel. And you can kind of chuckle at the story, but you have to realize how utterly disgraceful this is. So ends the story of Jezebel. The Lord's judgment on her was declared way back when. It was delayed for a period, but it is most certainly delivered, and in graphic ways. Clearly, this story is intended to be a warning. But it's also an explanation, and it's also a source of comfort. It is a warning to the nation of Israel that Yahweh will not tolerate evil kings who seek to undo the word of the Lord or to lead his people astray. It's also an explanation for a later generation, a generation who's likely reading this for the first time. It's an explanation for them of why they are in exile. Because no matter how great the purge, and there's more to come, by the way, Jehu is not finished, you'll need to come back, no matter how great or complete the purge is of a king's line, there's really no way, well, there's one way, but that's coming, there's no way, humanly speaking, in these moments where evil can be utterly eradicated from the land. And so it's going to explain to God's people why they are in exile. Because no matter how many kings are wiped out, another one arises. And he follows in the way of Ahab or in the way of Jeroboam and so on. 
There might be temporary relief, episodes of better kings, better moments, but nothing will finally or fully eliminate evil from the land. This story should also, though, be a comfort to those who love and follow the Lord and to all who have ever lost a loved one in Jezebel's campaign of fury and wrath directed toward Yahweh worshipers. She killed all those prophets. Those prophets had families. This, for them, is finally a moment of justice. We, of course, come to discover there's really only one king who can fully and finally do with all evil and with every enemy who will promote the good, reward righteousness, and who will execute justice. The one king who, like Naboth, was falsely arrested, falsely accused, found guilty of treason, put to death outside the city, all because he came to redeem God's inheritance. But the one who, like Jehu, was anointed to be king and recognized, this is our king, Hosanna, the son of David. The one who takes on himself the judgment that had been long ago announced in the garden. On the day you eat of it, you shall die. Delayed for centuries and millennia, but finally delivered to and on Jesus on the cross. His blood sprinkled, shed for many. He was crushed, not for his sins, but for ours. And when he was on the cross, you remember he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just a few verses later in that psalm, I am poured out like water. Dogs encompass me or surround me. They were circling because they were hungry. And if the only evidence we have left after Jehu's feasting is the body parts, the skull, the hands, the feet, which again, surely the dogs could have taken away. We have our Lord Jesus crucified at Golgotha. I hope this isn't too much of a stretch, but the place of a skull. And of whom we see, see from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Who would later, much later, or not much later rather, meet his troubled disciples and say to them, Peace be with you. Fear not, it is I. And as proof and evidence that he had been raised from the dead, he shows them and says, Behold my hands, see my feet, touch me, and see. I wonder if Jesus had Jezebel in mind when in Matthew chapter 18 he said, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If you're sitting here today with some sense of comfort because you're, in, you're one of those people Peter describes in 2 Peter 
chapter 3. You're one of those people who say, where is this God, or where is His coming, or where is His judgment? If you are imagining that God's judgment, because it is delayed, might somehow miss you, you need to think again. It is coming, and it's coming for you unless it has come to Jesus Christ for you. But there's another group of you sitting here thinking, and I know this, that you are a victim of injustice. Somebody has done you wrong. Here's comfort in this story for you. Jezebel did a whole bunch of horrible things and somehow for at least some time seemed to live as if she was going to get away with it. And justice in our life in this world is often delayed. It is often partial. It is imperfect, sometimes even perverted. And some of you may not see or experience or enjoy justice for you in this life, this side of glory. But be of good courage. The Lord saw the injustice done to His servants. He kept a record of it. And He repaid in the defenestration of Jezebel. And for all of the injustices you have ever faced, injustice is met in Christ, either in His death and resurrection, sometimes partially in this life through the hands of His agents who have authority and are able to dispense it. But justice will reign supreme when Jesus comes back. And in our world, injustice so often reigns so often prevails. Justice is delayed, or it's partial, or it's perverted. But you can be sure that when Jesus the great King comes, it will be, for each one of us, delivered by Christ, or as it has been satisfied in Christ. And that just means that as much as this is a warning and as a comfort, it's also a challenge. It's an encouragement to us. We of all people who rest in Christ, who has fully satisfied for all our sins as we often confess, we have an interest in seeing those presently aligned or lined up to become targets of the coming judgment of God in Christ. We have an interest in seeing them turn from their ways, turning to Christ before it is too late for them. All this in the story of Jezebel being tossed out the window, certainly it's sobering. It is a little humorous. The destruction for Jezebel is about as complete as it can get. But it's going to be complete as well for all those outside of Christ. The nation of Israel should have heard this story and turned and returned to the Lord. And you hear this story too. Turning to Christ, fleeing to Him, the one who took and satisfied the judgment and justice of God for you and who will execute justice perfectly when you have been the recipients of all kinds of injustice in this life. Let's pray together.
Lord, thank you for this graphic story. It gets our attention for sure. Thank you for your justice satisfied in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you look for and out, look out for and keep record of all the ways your people have been treated poorly. Lord, in this season of delayed justice, in the period where we wait, we ask that you would continue to bring many to yourself. Allow us to turn over our desire for vengeance to you, and in the meantime, help us to win those who are currently not only our enemies, but yours. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people say together, Amen.